pleasure is meaningless. Wisdom is meaningless. Work is meaningless. Let's eat dinner, right? What more is there really to say? It pretty much sums it all up, doesn't it? Travis has been helping out at the church this summer, and he's been putting together these videos of the scripture readings from Ecclesiastes. And he was, as he was editing the video this week, he said to me, you know, it's a really good thing that we have sermons after these scripture readings because they're so depressing. Has anyone been feeling that at all throughout this series? So sometimes the passages feel really heavy, right? And so we're kind of exploring what that means, what the book of, of Ecclesiastes is doing in the Bible and what hope we can find in the midst of it, especially for the time that we're living in right now. So this morning we are in week three of our series on the book of Ecclesiastes, right? And Ecclesiastes is one of those books of the Bible that we don't really know what to do with, right? It doesn't really get a lot of attention. And if we're honest, it's not hard to figure out why, right? The the thesis of the book of Ecclesiastes is that everything under the sun is meaningless, That's not the kind of thing that you can put on a bumper sticker, right? You can't put that on a mug and sell it at a Christian bookstore and expect to get a lot of sales. It doesn't fit nicely into one of those like gospel tracks that has like the three pictures that kind of walk you through the salvation story, right? It's not the kind of thing that you can fit easily into like a Sunday school classroom, right? At least Noah's Ark has like animals in it. Like the story is disturbing, but there's animals and kids love animals, right? So it kind of works. But what do you do with Ecclesiastes? Like, what's the application? Like, school, meaningless. Chores, kids, meaningless, right? We can't tell that kind of stuff to our kids. They wouldn't go to school, right? They wouldn't do their chores. We don't know what to do with Ecclesiastes because it doesn't fit tidally into the categories that we often use when we think about scripture. And that is exactly why it's such an important book. Always, but especially right now in this moment that we're living in, because Ecclesiastes names the struggle that life is difficult. It's honest about that. It it names the reality that life doesn't always make sense, that it doesn't always seem fair. And at the very same time, that life is precious that it's a gift to be treasured, that it's full of meaning and beauty and purpose and joy. Ecclesiastes is a book that gives us permission to embrace all of those realities at the very same time. Life is difficult and it's hard and confusing and it's a gift and it's rich with meaning and it's beautiful. And this is very liberating when you're 17 months into a global pandemic. Am I right? Sometimes when things are difficult, when we're struggling, we feel like we need to figure things out and get ourselves sorted to get into a better place before we can come to God. Do you ever feel like that? I think we often struggle with that, but scripture makes room for all of life. God's not afraid of our questions or our struggles. He meets us in them. And he helps us to see things from his perspective. So this is a beautiful book. It's a powerful book. It's an important book. Before we get into our passage today, we're going to do a really quick recap. So Ecclesiastes is one of the three wisdom books in the Bible, right? The other ones are Proverbs and Job. 
And wisdom literature is really all about what it means to live well. How do we live a good life? Often when we think about wisdom literature in the Bible, the first thing that comes to mind is the book of Proverbs, right? And Proverbs uh, is a book that really has a lot of wonderful insight into how to live well when the world is working as it should. In the book of Proverbs, if you work hard, you prosper. If you're lazy, you don't. If you're arrogant, you have conflict with others, right? If you're humble, you don't. In Proverbs, there's a cause and there is an effect. Not so with the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes grapples with what we all know to be true, that life doesn't always make sense, right? that things don't always go as they should, that so often we spend our time and our energy chasing after things that don't really seem to have a lot of ultimate purpose or significance to them. And it's written from the point of view of King Solomon, So Ecclesiastes fits into this genre of writing called uh, royal autobiography, right? Where the author invites us to imagine what it would be like to see things from the perspective of a significant figure. And so when we hear about the teacher in the book of Ecclesiastes, we're being asked to imagine that we're hearing about the perspective of King Solomon, A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Jeff introduced the book and he looked at chapter one and he talked about a really important word. It's the word that gets translated as meaningless in the NLT and the NIV. Does anybody remember what it is? You get like a thousand, a million points. If you can remember, what's the word? Anyone? Hevel. You guys are amazing. That's amazing. It's it's hevel, right? So this word, it's translated meaningless in NLT, NIV. Other translations uh, render it as futility or vanity, and do you remember what the word hevel really means? It's like a vapor, right? It's like a mist. It's like, if you're like a doTERRA person, if you have like a diffuser, it's like that stuff that comes up out of there, or if you vape, right, Doug? If you vape, just kidding, just kidding. It's like a vapor, right? And so the author gives us this word picture. He, he gives us this image that he keeps coming back to again and again to describe how fleeting everything is. Right, how temporary everything is. It's, th- it's there, and then it's gone. It's, it disappears. And not only that, but it's impossible to take hold of. Right? Like, vapor's real. It exists. You can see it. It's there. But then when you try to grasp it, what happens? You can't hold onto it, right? It slips through your fingers. So it's kind of like this puzzle, this enigma. It's a hard word to say, enigma. It's like a paradox, right? It doesn't really always make sense. So in chapter one, the teacher describes just how hevel, how meaningless everything in this life seems to be. Generations come, generations go, no one's remembered, no one's ever really satisfied or content. History just keeps repeating itself. It's all hevel, it's all meaningless. This morning, we're looking at chapter two. But before we get into our passage, I'm going to ask you to to reflect on a question, okay? Have you ever wanted something so badly that you became totally consumed with chasing after it, only to find that when you finally got it into your possession that you were totally disappointed? 
that, that, that feeling of satisfaction didn't stick. Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever had like a goal or an outcome that you were chasing after in your life that you thought if you could just get there, if you could just make that happen, that your life would finally come together, that you'd feel complete, that you would be happy. And then finally, you know, arrive there and come to find that you weren't, it didn't last. You weren't happy at all. You ever experienced that? I think we all experience this, right? Again and again in life. Maybe there was like a dream job that you thought you always wanted and so you went to school, you poured out your blood and sweat and tears like writing papers all night long. Ugh, the papers, like don't miss those days, right? You did the placements, you got the experience and you finally landed the job of your dreams only to find out a little while into it really wasn't for you, right? Or maybe for you it was like a relationship Maybe you were the kind of person that started planning your wedding when you were like two years old, spent your whole life watching rom-coms, just waiting for the right person to come along, and then they did, and you married them, and then you found out that they snore. Or what about this one? That they don't load the dishwasher correctly. Is that like a sensitive thing for anyone? What about vacation? I think this is a common one, right? Maybe you've had a time where you're just feeling tired, you're burnt out, you've been working so hard, but you've got that vacation week on the calendar. You know it's coming and it's kind of giving you the hope to keep chugging through. It's gonna give you the rest, the restoration that you need to keep going, but the vacation comes and the vacation goes and by 12 o'clock on Monday, you're just as burnt out as you were before, right? Familiar? My nephew Ethan had an experience like this uh, last week Ethan's six. I took Ethan out to get ice cream, as I often do, and it was a big day because uh, I let him get a banana split. So every time we go to Dairy Queen, he's like, he's been like eyeing up the picture on the menu of the banana split, wanting this banana split, and like I don't want him to be entitled, right? So every time I'm like, no, you know, we're gonna make a responsible choice, get something a little bit smaller. Uh, but last week I finally gave in, and I let Ethan get the banana split. It's big like ice cream sundae. And then he got it, and he was like looking at it, and he was looking at the picture on the menu, and he's like, is this the same thing? It doesn't look like that. It doesn't look the same. I'm like, yeah, well, welcome to life, kid. It's called advertising, right? Things don't always turn out to be the way they look in the picture. We all face these situations where we chase after things that we think we want, that we think will make us happy, but they don't. Or they do for five minutes and then they don't. And in chapter two, the teacher explores these things in life that so many of us spend so much time and energy chasing after and hoping that they will bring us happiness, like hoping that they'll bring us satisfaction. And he sets out to determine whether any of these things are really worth the time and the energy that we put into them whether they they can really satisfy us or provide any sort of like lasting meaning. And nobody in the entire world was more qualified to do this kind of experiment than King Solomon. This was a man who had access to unlimited resources. He was rich. He was the wisest person in the world. He had every opportunity available to him. If you or I wanted to do an experiment like this, probably it wouldn't be too long before we kind of like hit a wall, right? Because you can only buy so many vacation homes before the bank account starts to run dry, you know what I'm saying? 
And so we're always kind of left with this lingering sense, right? That maybe, maybe if we just had a little bit more money or the, the right opportunities that we could get what we would finally need to be satisfied. But King Solomon didn't have those same limitations. And so we're invited to learn from his experience as he goes to the fullest lengths possible to pursue the things that we so often think will make us happy. And what I find so amazing is that 2,500 years later-ish, right, we're chasing after the very same things that are written about in this book. Okay, so we're going we're gonna to dive into those this morning. The first thing that the teacher explores is pleasure, right? Maybe pleasure will give him some meaning or some satisfaction. And he just dives in headfirst to this. So he, he, tr- he tries giving himself over to laughter, to wine. He just kind of lets loose and has fun. He tries uh, building himself huge houses. He plants beautiful gardens and vineyards. He accumulates livestock. He gets slaves to do all the work for him. He piles up gold and silver. He has everything that anyone could ever want. He has everything that would give somebody status and, and a reputation of being important in his world. And not only that, he hires entertainment. Right? He gets singers. He hires singers to come and entertain him, and he gets uh, beautiful concubines, right? or as the message translates it, voluptuous maidens for his bed. Let the reader understand. Okay? Verse 10 sums it up really well. He says, anything I wanted, I would take. It's pretty powerful, isn't it? Anything I wanted, I would take. I denied myself no pleasure. The teacher squeezed every drop of pleasure out of every experience that he could. How does that sound? Not bad, right? (laughs) Not bad. If we're honest, this approach to life, this freedom to do whatever we want and have whatever we want is something that we all sometimes kind of dream about, isn't it? We're constantly seeking after the latest and greatest shiny new thing, whether it's a phone or a house or a car or clothes. In our consumeristic culture, we're never really satisfied with what we have. And we always kind of have this sense that maybe the next upgrade or the next purchase just might be enough. It just might do it. And we live in an entertainment-driven culture. Right? I mean, we're always walking around looking for the next hit of dopamine. We walk around with entertainment devices, entertainment machines, like in our pockets, right? Can anybody remember uh, the times when you used to just feel bored, like somewhere in the 90s, like that feeling of like boredom when you used to have to like go to the grocery store and wait in the line or like the doctor's office and like sit in a waiting room and just like wait? Can you remember that? It was horrible. We have like multi-billion dollar industries that exist for the sole purpose of keeping us entertained. We will seek pleasure wherever we can find it, whether it's through relationships or vacations or like cake, right? We're constantly chasing after pleasure. In fact, we we now are sending people up into space, right? For hundreds of thousands, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars for like 10 minutes in space. Um, But Bezos did say it was a great day. So it might be worth saving up for. We're always chasing after pleasure, but if we're honest, none of it really works. None of it really makes us happy. None of it really lasts. 
And this is the conclusion that the teacher comes to after all of his pleasure-seeking escapades. Verse 11, he says, As I looked at everything I had worked so hard to accomplish, it was all so meaningless. Like chasing the wind, there was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. He wasn't looking for just temporary pleasure. He was looking for something worthwhile, and he couldn't find it. And there's actually like a lot of contemporary research that confirms uh, what's, what Solomon found in his escapades as well. This is something that we study. There's a lot of psychology research that studies happiness, and studies show that once you have your basic needs taken care of, making more money doesn't actually lead to any significant increase in happiness. Is that crazy? So once your basic needs are covered, if you make more, it doesn't actually lead to more happiness. The more money you have, the more money you want, and the more money you have, the less effective it is at actually bringing joy. They've done research with like multimillionaires and they've found that they don't actually experience less stress in life, they just have different stress. Psychology Today published an article a couple of years ago called Too Much Pleasure, Not Enough Happiness. And it looks at all of the ways uh, that we kind of desperately try to experience pleasure and how those attempts often leave us feeling helpless and empty and they can be damaging to our health and ultimately just our sense of happiness. And in the article, the author suggests that in all of our pleasure seeking, we are now witnessing a growing crisis of meaning in our culture. She sounds just like the teacher, doesn't she? a growing crisis of meaning in our culture. Pleasure doesn't last, right? It can't bring true happiness, and it doesn't give us a sense of meaning. And then the next thing that the the teacher looks to to try to find some meaning is wisdom. He says, so I decided to compare wisdom with foolishness and madness, for who can do this better than I? The king. So this is Solomon, right? He's like the poster boy of wisdom, And so he figures if anyone could give it a fair assessment in terms of its value, it would be him. And initially, he almost kind of sounds hopeful in this exploration because he says it's better to be wise than foolish because wise people can see where they're going. But foolish people are always walking around in the dark. They can't see clearly. Kind of hopeful, right? But not surprisingly, his optimism doesn't last. Because he goes on to say, the wise and the foolish share the same fate. Right? Wise people die. Foolish people die. Right? They're both forgotten. And so he decides ultimately chasing after wisdom is meaningless too. You can read all of the self-help books in the library. You can have healthy habits and you can practice mindfulness, you can have positive relationships and be an expert at time management. You know, you can work hard, but not too hard, and you can play hard, but not too hard. You can make all of the decisions correctly and do all of the right things, but ultimately, we all share the same fate. So if this life is all that we have, right, and we know that it isn't, but we're gonna hear Solomon out here, right? This life is all we have, Wisdom really doesn't seem to have that much value either. And then he goes on to look at work. 
this is the final thing that he really kind of pours himself into in this section to see if he can find any value or meaning in it. And there are a couple of things that he finds troubling about work. The first one is this. You can work your fingers to the bones to build something really amazing, but you can't take it with you when you die. Right? You're leaving it here. And not only that, you can't even guarantee that the person who's going to receive it when you die isn't entirely incompetent. Right? So your work might all end up being for nothing. So this is a problem for him. And not only that, work adds stress and anxiety to life. Amen? Anyone ever feel like that, right? It keeps people up at night. And so not only do you have no control over the outcome of your hard work, it gets in the way of enjoying the things in life that we're supposed to enjoy, like sleep. Right? You guys like sleep? We all like sleep, right? gets in the way of enjoying the things in life that we're supposed to enjoy. And so he says, it's hevel. It's meaningless. It's like chasing the wind. In 1928, there was an economist named John Maynard Keynes, and he wrote an article that predicted that with all of the advances that were being made in technology and the increase uh, in efficiency in terms of production, that society was going to have a major challenge that they would face by the year 2028. So seven years away. He predicted that this major challenge we were going to face was that we were going to have too much leisure time. He said, we're probably going to be working about three hours a day, and even that was going to be more work than was, than was necessary. And so we would be in a bit of a crisis because we would need to find meaningful things to do with all of our additional leisure time. Is that a challenge for you guys? Is that something that you guys hear people say a lot? Like, oh, hi, how are you? Oh, good, I've been doing good. I'm just like I'm str- struggling because I've got all this leisure, leisure time. You ever had that happen? <laughs> Never had anyone say that to me in my life. Right? Never heard someone complain about having too much leisure time. It's just the opposite. Most of the time we feel overworked. We feel, feel overwhelmed by our work. We feel consumed by it, stressed out by it. Often we let our work kind of shape our sense of identity and our value and our purpose. And so there's this additional pressure to achieve and to succeed and to climb the ladder And then we have to put in extra time, right, so that we can afford the bigger house and the new car and the latest technology. But at the end of the day, what's it all for? And what's the cost when it comes to our relationships and to the experiences that really bring us a sense of fullness of life? The teacher would say, it's hevel. It's meaningless. It's hevel. How are you guys doing? How are you feeling? Yeah, optimistic, hopeful. Is this all as bleak and hopeless as it sounds? No. Phew, right? (laughs) Were you worried? (laughs) No, I don't think it is. If we pay attention to what the teacher is doing, to what he's just done, it's actually incredibly freeing. In Matthew 16, verse 26, Jesus asks his disciples, really powerful question. He asked them, what do you benefit if you gain the whole world, but you lose your soul? What do you benefit if you gain the whole world, but lose 
your soul. The teacher has just walked us through these key ways that we try to gain the world that so often results in us losing our souls. He's just deconstructed all of the ways that we go about trying to find fulfillment outside of God. He's dismantled any illusions that we might have about trying to find or create a meaningful life by our own effort. In his book, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Here's why Ecclesiastes 2 is good news. Because God hasn't left us on our own. We weren't designed to find fulfillment or meaning in our lives outside of him. And we don't have to because he's with us, right? He's offering us infinite joy. The teacher's perspective shifts in verses 24 to 26. And for the first time in this section of Ecclesiastes, he brings God into the picture. This is the first of several passages uh, that are kind of like this, that follow a similar pattern, a similar theme, and they're called the carp DM passages. Jeff talked about these uh, last week a little bit. So 24 to 25 say, say this. So I decided there's nothing better than to enjoy food and drink and to find satisfaction in work. Then I realized that these pleasures are from the hand of God. For who can eat or drink or enjoy anything apart from him? In the book of Ecclesiastes, we don't get like a perfect resolution to what what the teacher is really wrestling with. But we get these glimpses. We get these glimpses into a different way of seeing the world. And you really kind of get the sense that even though the teacher is struggling with these questions, that he has this deeper awareness, right? That he kind of knows that there's more, that he knows that God is bigger and better than all of the hevel that he's seeing take place around the sun, that there's beauty in this life, that we can delight in good food and in good company and in meaningful work, that these are gifts that come from the hand of God. How does it change things when we're able to see that everything we have is a gift from God? the God who created the universe, the God who has endless resources at his fingertips. How does it change things? How does it change things when we understand that God wants us to delight in the gifts that he pours into our lives, even when they show up alongside the pain and confusion of our broken world? Suddenly, I think we're free to get off of the treadmill. We're free to stop chasing after pleasure and value and purpose in things that ultimately don't satisfy us. And to open up our hands to receive everything as a gift from the God who loves us and is with us. 
And as we read Ecclesiastes today, we're further along in God's story of redemption, aren't we? We read Ecclesiastes as people who know that Jesus entered into this broken world that the teacher's grappling with. That God came to be with us, that he entered into the human experience and he showed us how to live. In Jesus, we see someone who has his entire sense of identity and purpose rooted in his relationship with the Father. Is Jesus ever in a hurry? No, Jesus was never in a hurry. He didn't accumulate wealth, right? He wasn't chasing after pleasure. He took time to rest. He enjoyed meals with his friends. He lived a life of connection. He gave himself for others. He did what he was called to do, and he did it all in love. And on on the cross, Jesus died and he rose again and he overcame the power of sin and death. That one thing, that one thing that the teacher just couldn't see past. Jesus overcame it on the cross and he reconciled us to God so that we could have eternal life starting now. Doesn't that just change everything? Doesn't that change the perspective Life doesn't always make sense, right? This is true. We all deal with challenges and struggles and things that just don't seem fair. But we are people whose lives are defined by resurrection. We're people who live every day knowing that we are in the care of the God who created the universe. And so we're free. We're free to let go of our need for control. We're free to ask questions and to struggle and to be honest about the things that we don't understand. And we're free to open up our hands, to live with hands that are open to receive and to delight in the gifts that God gives to us so freely. And we're free to do all of these things, trusting that God is with us and that he's for us, and that his love will never leave us. I'm going to close this morning with a reading from Matthew 6, verses 25 to 33. I think it really sums it up really beautifully. Uh, I'm going to read it from the message. It says this, If you decide for God, living a life of God worship, it follows that you don't fuss about what's on the table at mealtimes or whether the clothes in your closet are in fashion. There's more to your life than the food you put in your stomach, more to your outer appearance than the clothes you hang on your body. Look at the birds, free and unfettered, not tied down to a job description, careless in the care of God. And you count far more to him than birds. Has anyone by fussing in front of a mirror ever gotten taller by so much as an inch? all this time and money wasted on fashion, do you think it makes that much of a difference? Instead of looking at the fashions, walk out into the fields and look at the wildflowers. They never primp or shop, but have you seen color and design quite like it? The 10 best dressed men and women in the country look shabby alongside them. If God gives such attention to the appearance of wildflowers, wow, some loud thunder, eh? 
If God gives such attention to the appearance of wildflowers, most of which are never even seen, do you think, don't you think he'll attend to you, take pride in you, do his best for you? What I'm trying to do here is to get you to relax. Is that freeing? Trying to get you to relax, to not be so preoccupied with getting so you can respond to God's giving. People who don't know God and the way he works fuss over these things, but you know both God and how he works. Steep your life in God reality, God initiative, God provisions. Don't worry about missing out. You'll find all of your everyday human concerns will be met. There's a prayer that's used in recovery groups called the serenity prayer. Some of you are probably familiar with it. And it's a really beautiful prayer because it invites us into this posture of trust and surrender. And it invites us to experience and delight in the moments that we receive from God as the gift that they really truly are. And so would you join me in praying this prayer together as we prepare our hearts to uh, share in communion. Let's pray. Let's pray.